What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Again, everyone, welcome to Soft Rep Radio. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. I'm your host this morning, Steve Bellisbury. Joining us today, we have a very, very special guest, Francis Gary Powers Jr., the son of Gary Powers, who everyone knows was the U2 uh, pilot that was shot down over the Soviet Union back during the Cold War. Um, and Gary is a, a very interesting person in his own right. He was born during the Cold War in California. Um, he graduated from uh, Cal State LA uh, with a degree in philosophy. He has a master's 
from George Mason University, uh, as well as another master's from Adams State University in Colorado. He's the founder and chairman emeritus of the Cold War Museum, which is located at the Cold War Army Base, Vin Hill Farms, just outside of Washington, D.C. Well, it uh, used to be back in the day. It's probably a lot farther now because of traffic, but uh, he founded the museum in 1996 to honor Cold War veterans and prefer, uh, preserve Cold War history. So uh, before we get into all of that, we want to welcome Gary to the podcast. Gary, thanks for taking the time this morning. It is our pleasure. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for inviting me to be on. I look forward to chatting you uh, with you about Cold War history. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's jump right into this. Uh, you know, the son of uh, Gary Powers, you grew up, I mean, you knew somewhat about your father, but, you know, after reading your book, and uh, let, I want to mention this before we go any further, that Gary's uh, book is called Spy Pilot, Francis Gary Powers, the U-2 Incident, and a Controversial Cold War Legacy. And in the book, you talk about, you know, not really knowing the true story about your dad. And, you know, what was it like for you growing up while your dad was still alive? Well, for me growing up in this family, it was normal. I mean, I knew dad had been shot down, imprisoned, exchanged uh, by the Soviets for a Russian spy, but I didn't realize that was special. I was a kid. I just didn't comprehend the significance of it when I was growing up. When dad died on August 1st of 77 in a helicopter crash while working for NBC television, that's when I became aware of the historical significance of what he had gone through. But by that time, it was too late to ask him questions since he had just passed away. And so um, uh, throughout high school, it, that was a little challenging for me. Uh, but then in college, I came out of my shell. I was curious. I started doing research. And over the last 30 plus years, I've done all this research, talking to his contemporaries, getting uh, oral and written histories from uh, people uh, that knew him that had been unpublished. Uh, getting FOIA or declassified files uh, from the CIA and the Air Force that I really put this uh, puzzle together and found out the truth of what took place. And that was the whole goal when I started doing my research was to find out the truth of what took place so I knew how to answer questions. As a kid, I would um, get these questions from people, my peers at school or teachers or even strangers, asking about my father. Oh, you're Gary Powers' son. Did he do this? Did he do that? Why didn't he do this or that? And at the time, I didn't know the answers. So over the last 30-plus years, I figured out the answers, <laughs> and uh, my book was published in 2019, and it sets the record straight. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because you, you talk about this in, in, in the book and how there was such a, I guess, di diverse, uh, uh, I guess, kind of thought over whether your father did something wrong or he was a hero. And, and I remember growing up in that era, I, as we talked offline, um, you know, I, in elementary school, we were under the impression that he had done something wrong, that there was something, you know, and the teachers in elementary school gave us the impression that your dad had did something wrong. And then, as I told you, later on in high school, uh, we had a teacher that was a, you know, retired uh, Navy uh, captain. And he was telling us, no, Gary Powers was a was a hero. And it was very confusing for those of us growing up. And I can imagine, you know, being the son of Gary Powers, it had to have been very confusing when all of this 
you know, when you started your, uh, your research into this and, you know, um, you know, when you talk about your dad, you know, what was he like growing up? Was he just your, your typical dad that happened to be a pilot or, you know, did, did he, uh, ever give any inkling that there was something special there that had happened to him? Well, no, dad was, for the most part, um, a very down-to-earth individual. Uh, his profession was a pilot. That's what he did to support his family. Uh, he flew for the military uh, between 52 and 56. He was with the U-2 program from 56 to 60, uh, two years in a Soviet jail from 60 to 62. And then when he got home, um, he ended up being a test pilot for Lockheed, flying the U-2s between 63 and 70 and then flying for uh, radio and television stations in Los Angeles from 72 to 77. So his whole career, for the most part, was being a pilot. And that's what he wanted to do, what he loved to do. That was his passion. Um, so as I was growing up in this family, you know, I was aware that Dad had been shot down and imprisoned and ultimately exchanged, but it just it, I didn't understand the significance. Um, Dad uh, was um, uh, didn't overtly go out and talk about his experiences, but if people um, uh, invited him to go to a uh, meeting and talk, he would. Um, he also wrote a book called Operation Overflight back in 1970 that detailed his account of his experiences, and he was on the lecture circuit for two or three years between 70 and 72. Uh, some of your listeners might remember the Soupy Sales show or the Johnny Carson show, and uh, during that time period, he would be on those type of shows talking about his experiences promoting his book. So dad, for the most part, was just, you know, a Virginia gentleman. Uh, his handshake was his word. If he shook your hand, he'd fulfill his part of the obligation. Uh, and he uh, was a, one of the best pilots um, of the era uh, selected for the U2 program. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, uh, what people lose sight of is your father was not a spy. He didn't join the CIA. He joined the Air Force. He was an Air Force pilot, and he was selected for this very obviously sensitive mission. And I, I think that's important to remember because it's like, oh, well, you know, he's he didn't sign up to be James Bond. He signed up to be a pilot. And it just so happened that, you know, all of the events that were going on with the Soviet Union at that time and I think a lot of uh, younger Americans don't realize the uh, the tension that was going on between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the tension between our two countries, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, between uh, 45, the end of World War II, up through 91, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was the fear of a nuclear war. There was a fear of a surprise attack. Uh, there was a lot of tensions between the Soviets and the Americans. And that tension is really what guided the Cold War through that 46-year period of time. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62 was basically the apex of the Cold War. The U-2 incident that happened in May of 60 uh, was also one of the highlights of the Cold War. And I believe that that time period between May 1st of 60 when my father was shot down in October uh, 62, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, that was really the, the epitome of the Cold War, the hottest or the closest we came to a nuclear confrontation. Between those two dates of May 1st, when my father was shot down, you've got the uh, erection of the Berlin Wall in 61, 
increased tensions. You have the Bay of Pigs in late 61 or early 61, uh, more tension. And then that ended up being uh, uh, the tensions really accumulated with the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 62. So for students today that are studying Cold War history, it's usually the last week of school and they brush over it. They hear about the Cuban Missile Crisis because John F. Kennedy was involved in that one. But for the most part, they don't really know or understand what happened with the USS Liberty incident, the USS Pueblo incident, the U-2 incident, uh, the spy satellites we have going around in orbit now that was the result of the Cold War the cat and mouse game that we played with the Soviets, trying to find out their strengths and weaknesses while we, uh, they were trying to find out ours. And it was just really a, a, a global, international, multi-dimensional chess game uh, that could have resulted in the end of the world, but fortunately it did not. Right. And, you know, to, uh, to refresh our listeners' memories on this, because a lot of people probably don't remember a lot of the details on it. Uh, I know we could talk for hours about the mission and what happened, but can you give our listeners a, you know, a brief overview of what that last mission, you know, entailed and how your father ended up being captured and why a lot of people didn't believe that he didn't do anything wrong at that time. Because, um, you know, at that time we thought our U-2 spy planes were invulnerable right so um the whole reason that the u2 program became into existence was that uh, president eisenhower at the time along with alan dulles head of the cia they were trying to figure out the strengths and weaknesses of our adversary the soviet union uh, during that time period of the cold war it was very difficult to get ground agents james bond type of spies into the soviet union uh, they were a closed cities. They were closed society. Their maps were not accurate. Uh, there was no real good information that could be obtained by a ground agent because it was so difficult to move around in the Soviet Union. And so uh, because of the rhetoric that uh, Khrushchev was saying at the time about how they have more missiles than we do, they have more uh, bombers than we do, that they're going to bury us. That type of rhetoric uh, contributed to the United States' um, desire to find out their strengths and weaknesses, to protect Americans at home by finding out what type of military strengths, the weapons that these Soviets had. So the U-2 program was created in 1955, first operational July 4th of 56, and the plane that was designed by Kelly Johnson out of Lockheed Skunk Works, Burbank, California at the time, uh, he designed this airplane that would fly at 70,000 feet or above. And this airplane was state-of-the-art in the 1950s. Um, it could go for up to you know, 9, 10, 11 hours uh, at 70,000 feet, taking photographs of military installations and other uh, strengths and weaknesses of our adversaries. So for the first four years between 56 and 60, uh, the U-2s were flying over the Soviet Union, China, Tibet, India, Pakistan, Middle Eastern countries, Eastern European countries taking photographs. The Soviets had a weapon called the SA-2, a, a uh, missile, but it could only reach 60,000 feet at the time. Between 1956 and 60, the Soviets improved their weapon system. They developed the SA-2 missile, and this new and improved missile could now reach 70,000 feet. Um, when my father was selected to do the May 1st mission, one of his primary targets was to fly over Sverdlovsk, 
which was a city in the central part of the Soviet Union. And there had been some other photos taken about a month earlier that uh, showed an SA-2 base being developed there. So my father on May 1st was tasked to fly over that region, take photos of the, uh, the missile base to find out if it was operational. Well, Dad found out firsthand that it was. Uh, the new and improved SA-2 missile, uh, eight of them were fired. One of them exploded behind the tail section of the U-2 at altitude of 70,500 feet. And as a result, Dad was shot out of the sky. He was able to bail out, uh, and eventually he was uh, captured and uh, then um, put in jail at the KGB prison, Lubyanka. So at the time when this happened, uh, the American um, intelligence agencies, the CIA, NSA, uh, and those type of groups were going, you know, the Soviets are backwards. This is the height of the Cold War. There was a competition between the Soviets and the Americans. We thought we were better than them. They thought they were better than us. We were always going uh, like the space race. You know, it was a challenge. Who could be first to do something? It was bragging rights. And so for the United States, we did not believe uh, that the Soviets had the ability to shoot down a U-2. It's the Cold War. It's the Soviets. They're backwards. They're not like us. They can't do this. It had to be the pilot's fault. Something had to have gone wrong uh, uh, that um, uh, allowed the Soviets to shoot down our aircraft. Because, of course, the Soviets are so far backwards. It's the height of the Cold War. We're going to blame them or, or try to discount them for their achievements. And so this is part of what led to the controversy that surrounded my father. At the time when my father was shot down, you know, this, this feeling was that, oh, no, it can't be the Soviets. They can't develop that type of weapons. It had to be the pilot's fault. And the primary theories at the time was that he had a flame out that forced him to a lower altitude, that he defected, that he landed the plane, uh, or that something else had happened um, that caused him to be captured. The American government at the time just could not bring themselves to admit that the Soviets were more advanced than we were in rocket technology. So that was part of the contribution, or that's what contributed to my father's reputation being tarnished when he was shot down. Now, you have to fast forward for a bunch of years. Um, over the last 50 plus years, the truth has come out. Uh, in 1960, it was very limited on what was discussed and what was out there in the public domain. But now that the Cold War is over, um, the Freedom of Information Act requests have been submitted. Uh, a lot of stuff has been declassified with the U2 program. Specifically in 1998, there was a declassification conference hosted by the CIA and the Air Force that really helped to set the record straight. And it was a result of that conference in 98 that it was shown that the U-2 program, which was run by the CIA, a civilian agency, was actually a military operation uh, run in conjunction with the U.S. Air Force. And for all intent and purposes, um, the operation was military. In 1960, when this operation first started, it could not be designated as a military operation. Had it been a military pilot with a military plane flying over a foreign hostile country, that would have been an act of war. And so uh, it had to be a civilian operation, which is why the CIA handled it uh, initially back in the 60s or the 50s. Um, now that that 1998 declassification conference has happened and it was shown that it was a military operation, that allowed the government to uh, come forward and acknowledge that my father is a hero to our country. As a result of that declassification conference in 1998, 
the U.S. Air Force uh, and the CIA stepped up to the plate. They helped to uh, dispel the misinformation. They helped to set the record straight. And as a result, Dad was posthumously awarded the POW Medal, Prisoner of War Medal, for his incarceration in the Soviet Union. And then ultimately, he was awarded the Silver Star in 2012 uh, for his participation in the YouTube program and his captivity in the Soviet Union as a prisoner for two years. So we're very happy as a family that the American government was able to help set the record straight and uh, able to uh, show that dad was a hero to our country. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because, you know, reading this, you know, at the time that the people in the government, as you said, you know, they couldn't believe that the Russians had the technology. So they automatically assumed he did something wrong. But then, uh, you know, and I'm jumping forward. I'm, I'm going to move backwards in here in a minute. But after he returns and he's been he's being debriefed constantly by the CIA and, and, and the people at, back in Washington, they they came to the conclusion, with the exception of the then director of CIA, that he didn't do anything wrong. What was the, the sticking point in this one director's mind that he refused to accept the truth? Did you ever right. come to? Did you ever uh, figure out why that was? Yeah, um, uh, CIA director that followed Alan Dulles was John McCone, and um, he, at some point in time, while Dad was uh, in prison, uh, had gone out on a limb and said that it was the pilot's fault, that he must be a traitor, that he had done something wrong, and McCone did not want to eat crow. He wanted to be right. So he did everything he could to show that he was right. My father had done something wrong. But regardless of the Pettyman, uh, Judge Pettyman was convened to do a board and evaluate the situation. Uh, the U.S. Air Force and the CIA convened a, a damage assessment team uh, and a um, debriefing team when dad came home. And this is what basically happened. The CIA, during the debriefings for three weeks in February of 62, found out that Dad did everything he was supposed to do. He followed orders to the T. He did not give out any classified information. He did not collaborate with the enemy. He followed his orders as directed. Um, then the Senate Select Committee hearing on March 6th of 62, the senators uh, eight hours of deliberations, questions and answers back and forth. At the end of that session, they give my father a standing ovation and they exonerate him of any wrongdoing. So the CIA has cleared him. The um, uh, Senate, our government has cleared him, but the court of public opinion has not yet cleared him. And part of that is because of all the misinformation in the newspapers saying he defected, he landed the plane intact, he spilled his guts, or that he hadn't followed orders. And this was uh, John McCone's mindset. He believed that dad had done something wrong and he was going to do everything possible to show that he was right and my father had done something wrong. Well, at the end of the day, that wasn't the case. <laughs> and it, even to the point of in 1963, I want to say, every U-2 pilot was awarded the Intelligence Star for Valor by the CIA. My father had one in this group but he was not invited to attend the CIA ceremony where these awards, awards were presented. His was presented to him in 1965, uh, a few months prior to McCone leaving office. It's one of the fat last things that he had to get off his plate and, and do. And my father, when he realized that he had been snubbed, was not 
too happy. I mean, he almost decided to, to basically say, shove it and not go to this uh, ceremony to get this award. But uh, my mom calmed him down and said, hey, Frank, you got to play nice. You got to go accept this award. They're trying to make up to you for it. <laughs> and so eventually he did receive this in 65. But again, this all comes down to the, the um, Cold War mentality. Uh, the Soviets, the Red Scare, uh, you were just coming off the McCarthy era of the 50s. Uh, it was easier to blame the pilot than it was to admit that we were inferior to the Soviets. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, reading all this in the book, it was amazing. And, and the fact that um, I guess growing up, we all had this this intense fear of the Russians and the KGB and everyone automatically assumed that uh that you know he was tortured you know when uh, or mistreated really badly by the russians as soon as he was captured but that really wasn't the case was it no um fortunately now the soviets did torture certain prisoners and people mm -hmm. that they had captured um some of that has now been revealed over the last 50 plus years as to what had happened I believe that my father was treated relatively well, all things considered, because he was so high profile. The world knew that the Soviets had him in captivity, and the Soviets wanted to show the world how humane they were, how nice they were, how they treated the spies that they caught in their country uh, as a way to further embarrass the United States. They were using my father's capture, the show trial, and uh, ultimately the exchange as a way to – as propaganda to show how nice and good they were and to further embarrass the U.S. You have to remember that the U.S. had executed the Rosenbergs in the uh, late uh, 50s, I believe, mm -hmm. um, and that when they caught uh, Rudolf Abel, the Soviet spy my dad was eventually exchanged for, they gave him 30 years in prison. Well, the Soviets, being such a nice and hospitable country, gave my dad 10 years in prison, did not give him the death sentence. And this was all a way of propaganda to show the world how nice that the Soviets were. Um, so that is just it's part of the cat and mouse game and part of the uh, um, way that the Cold War affected our two countries. Yeah, and, and during your father's trial, uh, your grandparents got to – in his first wife uh, gets got to travel to Moscow. Um, I know you don't have any, you didn't have any contact with your uh, dad's first wife, but um, did you ever get to talk to your grandparents about this time frame? Yeah. Uh, well, my grandfather, my dad's dad passed away in 1970. I was five years old, so I okay. wasn't really able to talk to him. Uh, my grandmother uh, passed away back in 91 and 92 and I, I didn't really ask her any questions about it at the time. I was still, you know, relatively young um, and didn't uh, really interact with her for the last five years of her passing. She was in Virginia. I was in California. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't really get to talk to my grandparents. But I did talk to my aunts and uncles, my dad's sisters and their husbands, about their recollections. Um, I was able to find 85 of my dad's letters that he wrote to his parents and his siblings and their responses. So between the letters and the correspondence, talking with my aunts and uncles, uh, listening to my dad's recorded tapes that he had recorded when he was living, I was able to really piece together and find out a lot of what took place uh, behind the scenes uh, as a result of the U2 incident. The whole reason I ended up writing the book, uh, Spy Pilot, was to help set the record straight. 
there was all this misinformation out there, all this rumors, these speculations about what took place. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the family's version of events and activities, the truth of what took place was documented for future generations to read. There's all this misinformation online, uh, conspiracy theories and rumors and speculation. Thanks to the Internet, it's still out there. Well, at least now this book is out there uh, and there's the truth of what took place. Um, so that can also be found and read if researchers do their due diligence. The um, whole reason was to uh, I did this book was to take uh, was to show what Dad's reputation went through. It went from infamy and controversy in the 60s after being shot down to that of an American hero today. And this book goes through the behind the scenes activities as to what the family did to help set the record straight, my research that helped to show uh, the truth of what took place. And eventually, uh, that led to the American government uh, posthumously awarding my father those medals as a hero to our country. So it was necessary for me to do this book, uh, basically in honor of my father, uh, to help set the record straight. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Yeah, and, and one of the, and you you just referenced some of the letters that you know your your dad had written from the prison in, in the Soviet Union. 
And one of the letters um, that you, you posted in, in the book was really, it was, it was, uh, I, I don't know, I guess it's heart-wrenching almost because your grandparents read from the New York Times that uh, one of the, you know, the reporters from the New York Times said that your father was uh, planning on remaining in the Soviet Union after he was released, that he was going to stay there. And he actually had no sources on that. And it greatly upset your parents. And I can't even begin to fathom how that affected your father, who's languishing uh, in a Soviet jail and reading about this, which is totally untrue. And uh, can you, you fill our, uh, our our listeners and our readers in about that? Because that, uh, to me, was like, that. reading that in a book, uh, I mean, it puts the screws to you because you put yourself in that position. And I think it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, well, that is correct. Uh, while Dad was in prison, there was all this misinformation uh, being released um, both, by both sides. Uh, there were editorials in the press saying my father defected, landed the plane intact, that he was seen drinking Russian vodka at a bar shortly after landing. Um, there were other accounts, uh, like you just said, that uh, he had decided to stay in the Soviet Union upon his uh, release. Um, and it was all basically uh, the misinformation uh, of the time. Um, uh, journalists, and I say that uh, with tongue in cheek, that were writing about something they had no idea about. They were fabricating these stories to sell their newspapers at dad's expense. And so all this rumor and misinformation was released that clouded um, uh, and contributed to the uh, controversy as to what actually happened. And that's why I thought it was so important to finally write this book is to set the record straight and show the truth of what took place. Yeah, and you know, it's... <laughs> It's again, I mean, growing up in that time frame, I remember that, like as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's it's one of those things that, you know, all of us didn't know what to believe because we're getting all this conflicting information about your father. And, you know, it, it's amazing that the truth did come out. And I want you to t uh, tell our listeners about the eventual trade for Rudolph Abel. Did we ever find out who? He actually was. I know Rudolf Abel was a fictional name of a fictional person, supposedly from East Germany, but we know he was Russian. But did we ever find out who Rudolf Abel actually is? Yes. Um, Rudolf Abel um, was a KGB colonel uh, in the KGB. He was a ground agent. He was a cloak and dagger spy. Uh, he, um, his actual name was, I want to say, Willie Fisher. Uh, and he uh, was uh, working for the Soviets, uh, for the KGB. He was snuck into uh, America through Canada. He's what's referred to as an illegal in that he crossed the borders with fake documentation, fake passport, things like that, to establish a life in America as a spy uh, in New York City. Uh, his uh, cover was that of an artist. And he was a fairly good artist. He would do paintings and photography and make some money in New York doing that for clients. But all the time, he was actually running a Soviet spy ring, collecting microfilm and microfish, uh, putting things in hollowed nickels or hollowed pencils to pass on to his superiors in the Soviet Union to bring back the secrets of America to um, the Soviets in the KGB. So Rudolf Abel... 
uh, was in America for many years in the 1950s, ended up getting caught in, I want to say, 57 or 58 because of a hollowed nickel. Uh, one of the paper boys on a round delivered a paper to his apartment, and either he or someone there by accident had given him this nickel that was hollowed out and contained some microfilm. So the little paper boy goes home, he's counting his change, the nickel drops on the floor and opens up. And he and his dad look at this thing and go, this is odd, what is this? Well, his dad calls uh, the police, the police call the FBI, the FBI go, this is odd, this looks like a spy nickel. And so they set up a sting operation to figure out what apartment this nickel came from. So in 58, the FBI capture Rudolph Abel, he's put on trial, um, James Donovan is the attorney who represents him at trial, and uh, then he's able to get a 30-year sentence as opposed to the death penalty. So this is the story of Rudolf Abel, the Soviet spy that was captured in New York City in the late 50s. Turns out that uh, my father ends up being exchanged for Rudolf Abel on February 10th of 1962 at uh, the Glenacre Bridge, Potsdam, Germany. On one side of the bridge in the morning, 6.30, 7.30 in the morning, uh, is Rudolf Abel, surrounded by his CIA and FBI entourage. On the other side of the Glenacre Bridge is my dad, surrounded by KGB. So they are positively ID'd. They walk home to their respective freedoms. Abel returns home a hero of the Soviet Union. My dad returns home to all this controversy. Hence why I wanted to write the book, to set the record straight. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to ask you about the the movie that Steven Spielberg made um, about uh, that uh, James Donovan, who you mentioned, was a uh, an attorney who uh, he defended Rudolph Abel, even though he despised what he stood for, but he believed one hundred percent in you know the American ideal that everyone deserves a, a fair trial, and he ended up. Um, um, you know, being behind, I guess, to a, to a degree, the trade, uh, the movie that Steven Spielberg made, um, uh, what's Bridge of Spies? I drew a blank there for a second. You actually had a cameo in that. And uh, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you: Was if from your family, were you pleased with the way your father was portrayed in that film? Well, yes, uh, thank you for referencing the movie. Um, the movie came out in 2015. It was directed by Steven Spielberg. It starred Tom Hanks as James Donovan. Uh, Austin Stoll, a young actor, portrayed my father. And Mark Reliance uh, portrayed Rudolf Abel. Uh, Mark Reliance ended up winning an Oscar for his portrayal of the Soviet spy. So it's an Oscar-winning awesome movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great movie. Yeah. Um, you can find it on uh, DVD and Netflix and things like that. But um, uh, when this uh, movie uh, was uh, being rumored to take place, um, I was able to get in touch with the producer, Mark Platt. Uh, he and I talked about the movie and the Powers family's concerns. I mean, I, I reached out to them and say, hey, if you portray my father with all the misinformation, that's going to add to this, uh, uh, his, his, his reputation being tarnished. But if you show the truth of what took place and, and the base of the portrayal of my dad on the declassified files that's come to surface, then you'll be painting him as a hero to our country. So they liked what I had to say. They hired me on as a technical consultant. Um, I was able to try to steer them in the right direction. And as a result, um, they did do a very good job of uh, the portrayal of my father. 
there is some misinformation in the movie. Uh, it is Hollywood. It's not a yeah. documentary. It's not 100% accurate. So even though the big picture is accurate, the tensions between the Soviets and the Americans, the fear of a nuclear war, the duck and cover drills and civil defense things that were going on, uh, my father being shot down and exchanged, all is relatively correct in the big picture. But then when you go into every scene and you analyze each scene, it's not 100% correct. So uh, there is some misinformation that did find its way into the film, but overall, we're very happy with the outcome. At the very end of the film, in the postscript, uh, they honor my dad as a hero to our country. So I really can't ask for more than that. Yeah, and uh, I thought it was a fantastic film. And, and uh, again, I mean, we know that Hollywood tends to oversimplify things because, I mean, that's they can't tell a, a story that takes, what, five to six years in the making in, in two hours. So, uh, you know, they kind of have to simplify things, but I was just curious about your feeling about that. And, and, uh, so did, did you get bit by the Hollywood bug after being, a, uh, you know, a extra in there as a CIA guy? Or? <laughs> well, yeah, as part of the, uh, um, uh, 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 movie, uh, when I was consulting, I'm on set at a few of the locations, and at the Beale Air Force Base in California, where the home of the U-2 program is, uh, they made that to appear like it was in um, Peshawar, Pakistan, for the May 1st flight. So they said, hey, Mr. Powers, put on this vintage 1950s suit. We're going to have you escort the pilot out to his May 1st mission. And so I did a little cameo appearance where I escort the pilot out of the hangar doors um, uh, for the May 1st mission. So it was, it was really a thrill and a, and a delight to do this. Uh, very surreal uh, to realize that oh crap I just walked my father out to his mission. <laughs> it, it was very it was it was a great experience and one that I won't forget anytime soon. Yeah, I mean uh, you had to be feeling close to your dad at that point because here you are, you know, years after the what 50, 60 years after it happened, you're walking your father out to his you know uh, his final flight in the U two. Yeah, it was it was very cool to be able to do that, and uh, it was just an honor and a privilege to work with uh, Mr. Spielberg, Mr. Hanks, and all the the crew and the staff on the project. So you know, um, <clears throat> I wanted to jump back, and I, I, I kind of jumping all around all over the place, but um, you know, in in the research for your book, um, right off the bat, I, you know, if you if you read the book, and I encourage all of our uh, listeners out there to buy it. It's called Spy Pilot, France, Francis Gary Powers, the U2 Incident and the Controversial Cold War Legacy. The foreword to the book is written by the son of Nikita Khrushchev, and you got to know him quite well. And uh, describe our listeners uh, how that came about. Well, yeah, Sergei Khrushchev, Khrushchev's son, and I are, are, were friends. He's passed away. Um, we first met in about 1995-96 in Boda, Norway. Boda is where the U-2 on May 1st would have landed had it been a successful mission. And we were both there invited uh, by the uh, Boda Aviation Museum for a conference on the Cold War and the U-2. So we first meet each other there. And, you know, we were a little suspicious of each other and eye each other up and down. But after the week conference, uh, turns out that, you know, he was trying to um, – write about his father and to uh, get information out. I was trying to find out about my father and get information out. Uh, we were both historians. We were both trying to look at things from an impartial perspective, so find out the truth of what took place. And so we hit it off. 
Um, he lived and worked in um, Rhode Island. He was a professor at Brown University for many years. Uh, so he'd walk, he'd come down to Washington D.C. on occasion. We'd get together for dinner or drinks and and talk shop and reminisce about Cold War history. So he was very um, uh, thoughtful to do the introduction for me when I asked, and uh, he uh, uh, basically um, did the introduction as uh, as I guess because we had a good friendship. <laughs> so I was very fortunate to be able to get him to do that for me. Yeah, that's you know I think <clears throat> that's an amazing footnote to. The- the entire uh, uh, series of events that played out. I mean, here you have the the son of the U-2 pilot and the son of the Soviet premier becoming friends after the fact. I think that fills us all full of a little bit of confidence that maybe, you know, we, we can work through this Cold War stuff, which is still going on today. Oh, yes. Um, the, the Cold War uh, technically, quote unquote, ended uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, but the Cold War mentality lives on, um, both within our government and the uh, Russian government, uh, especially with Putin. He is yep. a Cold War prodigy. He is a KGB-raised uh, uh, person who uh, lived through the Cold War and, as a result, still has that mentality. Yeah, absolutely. And uh so when when you were researching the book, and, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, you know, talk to our listeners a little bit about what it was like when you retraced some of his steps. You actually went to Russia, then the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, and you got to visit, you know, his uh, where he was tried, uh, his jail cell, and, and the site of his, his shoot down. And what was that like? Uh, for for you personally? Well, I have uh, been to the Soviet Union once on May 1st of 90, the 30th anniversary. I've been to Russia uh, three other times in 2007, 2000, I got to remember these dates again, 2010. And uh, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. I was in the Soviet Union in May of 1990. I was in uh, the Russia in 97, 2010, and 2017. And on these various trips, I was able to meet people who uh, interacted with my father, uh, one of the missileers who designed the SA-2 missile to shoot him down. I was able to visit the Hall of Columns where the trial took place. Uh, In 97, I was able to visit my father's prison cell in Vladimir Prison where he was incarcerated for 18 months. And then in 2017, I was able to see the actual shoot-down location where the chunks of the plane hit the ground and the impact craters are still there, as well as I was able to visit the SA-2 base where the missiles were fired from and meet with people uh, who were very young at the time, who are older now, who remember seeing the shoot-down and or the commotion that took place that day. So this was all part of my research to find out uh, the truth of what took place. I was able to visit the, the sites in the Soviet Union and or Russia. I was able to visit the Glenniker Bridge in Potsdam, Germany. I was able to uh, visit various locations associated with the U-2 incident. In regards to my book, Spy Pilot, uh, people can get it off eBay or Barnes & Noble or Amazon for a very good price. If you'd like to get an autographed copy, you can go to my website at spypilotbook.com. Absolutely. And uh, we encourage all our listeners and readers to do that. Um, And I I have to ask you, um, you know, with 
with all the misinformation that was out there growing up, um, did you ever sense your father was bitter over this? Was he, uh, was he bitter outwardly? I'm sure he had some bitterness inwardly, uh, but did he ever portray any of that to you growing up? Uh, no, my dad never portrayed that to me. I was still, I, I was 12 when he died. So I, mm-hmm. I was a kid with a kid mentality and I, I didn't see that stuff. He didn't talk to me about that stuff. Uh, he did talk to my mom and bitter. Yeah, you could say that. Um, he, he, wa- he always thought that the U.S. government could have done more when he came back home in 62 to help set the record straight. Um, but I and, and the, the, the CIA did clear him and the Senate did clear him. So, you know, there's not much more you can do. But he thought that they should have helped to squelch the misinformation to help mm-hmm. show the truth of what took place. But as I have discovered, uh, because it was the Cold War and this mindset, it was easier to let this misinformation circulate around. It helped to keep the secrets secret. There was so much misinformation. No one knew what the truth was. And the CIA likes that. They don't like to divulge their truths. I mean, they like to keep that vague um, so that they can continue to do what they do, which is necessary to protect our country. So um, dad felt that they, the government, the U.S. government could have done a little bit more to help set the record straight, to help clear his name. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, at the time, the Cold War time period, it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, but fortunately, once the Cold War ended, once enough time passed, the truth did surface, and the American government did honor Dad as a hero to our country. So we're very, very honored and humbled to know that they did that. And and uh, you know, moving on, and and your your dad was a hero, and there was a lot of, again, <clears throat> you know, James Bond talk about there was this uh, needle that, you know, pilots could commit suicide. They were never ordered to do that. And I think that's one of the misinformation things that's out there that, oh, well, he didn't commit suicide like he was ordered to do. That was strictly left up to the pilots, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the pilots were told during their training that if you're caught, you will be tortured. Here is a way to alleviate the pain and suffering. A small poison-tipped needle hidden in a hollowed-out silver dollar. Um, it was an optional device to take an optional device to use at the pilot's discretion. And so when my father ends up um, uh, uh, with this device but not using it, people assumed incorrectly that he was ordered to do it, that he must have disobeyed orders. Why would he have this device unless he was ordered to to use it? And that was part of the mystique about the U-2 incident and the controversy uh, around it that tarnished my dad's reputation. Did he follow orders? Did he disobey? Well, he did, he did follow orders to the T, and the CIA realized this when he was brought back home. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and then moving forward, you know, you embarked on this journey to find out, you know, all the truth about your father. You weren't, at, at, the, at the outset, you weren't looking to clear your father's name. You were just looking to find out what the actual truth was. And then as the truth came out, now now your 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 work was to clear your father's name but as part of that um which i think you've done obviously but part of that is you created the uh uh the cold war museum and and talk to our listeners about that again because i think it's important that so many people don't understand how in depth the cold war really was and 
you know, explain where the, the museum is and, and what it's all about. Well, that, that's exactly right, Steve. And when I started the research for the book, and this is 25 plus years ago, I was not trying to clear my father's name. I was not trying to honor him. I was not trying to do anything but to find out the truth so I knew how to answer questions. And it snowballed. And as a result of the book and my research, um, I discovered that there were hundreds of thousands of other men and women who fought, sacrificed, some of which who died during this Cold War time period that had not received any recognition for their service to our country during the Cold War era. You combine that with kids in, in school not really knowing anything about the Cold War uh, in the 1990s. You know, Within five years after the end of the Cold War, these high school students didn't understand what it was or, or didn't really learn about it. And we found that there was a need to honor Cold War veterans, preserve Cold War history, and educate kids on this time period. So in 1996, I founded the Cold War Museum to do just that. I thought it would take three years, fundraise three million bucks, shouldn't be too hard to do. Ends up taking 15 years to get brick and mortar. And in that time period between 96 and 2011, uh, we collected uh, uh, hundreds and thousands, not thousands, well, hundreds and thousands of Cold War artifacts and items. Uh, from the U.S. Um, Liberty incident, the USS Pueblo incident, uh, duck and cover drill information from civil defense, uh, items that were used at Vent Hill, this uh, top secret military base uh, during the Cold War, uh, the monitors and receivers that were used to uh, collect signals intelligence or electronic intelligence from the embassies or around the world. And we've been doing this as a way to honor the veterans, preserve the history, and educate the kids. The museum is located at Vent Hill Farm Station, 45 miles west of Washington, D.C. It's an authentic Cold War historic site uh, used throughout the Cold War to monitor the, uh, our em enemies uh, around the world. And uh, the uh, museum opened uh, to the public in, uh, I want to say, November 2011. It's been open now for 10 years. Uh, on the weekends, staffed by volunteers, midweek by appointment for school groups or other people who cannot make it on a weekend. More information online at coldwar.org. Excuse me. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, we, we encourage all of our listeners and readers, if you're in the Virginia area, to definitely check that out. And, uh, you know, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to inform our listeners about this morning before we wrap this up? Well, um, the Cold War was a world war. It was also a hot war. People did die during this conflict. It affected every country to one extent or another. And uh, we just uh, are very um, uh, honored to be able to help preserve this history and to honor the veterans who fought, sacrificed, and some of which who died during this conflict. Uh, more information can be found online at coldwar.org. And if any of your listeners would like to contact me directly, they can reach me through my website at garypowers.com. Excellent. And uh, we, we, again, we really want to uh, thank you for taking the time this morning. We appreciate that and all your work that you've done, and uh, especially with the Cold War Museum and, and writing your father's name. Um, but before we, we, we wrap this up, I just want to uh, read something really quick. If you want to get SoftRep on your phone, download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles, podcasts, and gear reviews all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to all our library of eBooks, 
and our exclusive team room forums and content available on all your Apple and Android devices. Gary, once again, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, we really appreciate it. We appreciate your time and all the work you've put in. And uh, this was a fantastic book. And once again, uh, uh, we encourage all of our readers out there, check it out. Spy Pilot, Francis Gary Powers, The U2 Incident, and a Controversial Cold War Legacy. Thanks again, sir, for joining us this morning. Uh, let's hope we can uh, do this again sometime soon. Well, Steve, that'd be great. It was a pleasure to join you. Uh, and if any of your listeners are interested in having me to be a speaker at one of their events or um, uh, activities, I am always looking for lecture venues around the country uh, to talk about Cold War history. So thank you very much for having me as a guest on your show today. Yeah, make sure you check out uh, the his personal website as well. And, uh, and if you're interested in having him speak at one of your events, you can do so there. So for myself, Steve Balshuri, our uh, our guest this morning, Gary Powers, who joined us. This is uh, up from Soft Rep Radio. We want to thank you all for listening. We'll be back with another podcast very, very soon. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 